by the time I, I graduated high school, uh, doors were opening for an acting career, and I thought I might as well keep this, this career going. And the doors that were opening were lining up with what was happening to me on the inside. I wanna be about things that promote faith. I wanna be about things that promote family and marriage. And here I am uh, looking in the rearview mirror saying, this has been awesome. Hey, hey, and welcome. This is the Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special. I'm really excited to welcome to the show Kirk Cameron. Kirk is an actor and producer. You remember him as Mike Seaver on Growing Pains, but he's also starred in Fireproof and Way of the Master. He's currently on a 30-city tour for his marriage and parenting conference, Living Room Reset. Now, quick reminder, we'll be doing some bonus questions with our guests. The only way to get access to that part of the conversation is to spend money on us by becoming a subscriber. That's how we hold you up for the cash. Go on over to dailywire.com, become a subscriber. You'll have access to all of the full conversations with every one of our awesome guests. Kirk, thanks so much for joining the show, dude. Oh, man, it's my honor. Great, great, to, great to meet you. Great to be here with you. I gotta say, I, I, my entire family grew up on, of course, you as Mike Seaver really? in Growing Pants. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, well and this is kind of crazy because my family kind of grew up with you on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, you're, you're, you're quite the hit and, uh, and, and, and legend and subject, subject of, of debate and passion uh, conversations at our house. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I have to say, I was kind of insulted that, you know, I have a name profile and yet, my wife was far more excited that you were coming on the Sunday special oh. than that I actually host the Sunday special. So that's it. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, it, is, it is fun and it's funny. Uh, so many people grew up in the 1980s with growing pains and shows like, uh, like that and Who's the Boss and other kinds of shows. And it just, you just feel like these people grew up with you in your living room. So it's like their family. Like you feel like you know them. Exactly. And, you know, for me, it was the Fonz. It was Henry <laughs> Winkler. And, uh, you know, I was pretty excited when I met him. So in a second, I want to ask you about... What happened while you were producing, while you were on Growing Pains and your, and your shift to Christianity? Because that was obviously the defining feature of not only your life, but also of, of your move in your career. I'm going to ask you about that in just a second. But first, let's talk about a simple fact. That is, governments can manipulate how much your money is worth. They do this on a fairly routine basis. They're constantly inflating the currency or deflating the currency. China, for example, has been manipulating their currency for a while now. That has a real impact on your savings. Well, now is the time to get in touch with the folks at Birch Gold. Why? Well, they allow you to diversify out of just the currency and into something that actually stands up to government manipulation. Right now, they're putting out an offer I've never seen. It's the Silver Stocking Stuffer event. When you contact Birch Gold Group this month to buy precious metals, once you complete your purchase before December 20th, Birch Gold will send you free silver. It's a great stocking stuffer or Hanukkah gift. Have a conversation with a Birch Gold expert. See if precious metals make sense for your family. Birch Gold, they've been with us since the very beginning. I know the guys. I trust the guys. And you can ask them all your questions until you feel comfortable. And then once you do, open your account with Birch Gold Group today. You can get free 100% silver. You can even get a copy of their no-obligation free information kit. Birch Gold Group, they've got thousands of satisfied customers, countless five-star reviews, and A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. It would be smart of you to diversify. Make sure that you're protecting yourself against the vicissitudes of the market. It's worth it. Just text Ben to 474747. Claim your eligibility for this special offer today. Again, text Ben to 474747. So let's talk a little bit about what has become sort of the defining feature. Whenever there's an article about you in the press, it's always about your shift to Christianity while you were playing Mike Seaver on Growing Pains, which is a radical shift, at least from the outside, just because the character of Mike Seaver is so different from somebody who would become an evangelical Christian. So, so what exactly happened to you, and what was that experience like? Well, uh, I didn't grow up in a religious home, so I never went to church. Uh, in fact, I, I thought that, um, that uh, Jesus was part of a different trinity, uh, the Easter bunny, the, f uh, the tooth fairy, and God. Uh, so that, that was never on the radar, but I actually met a girl on the set who was really cute, and um, 
she invited me to go meet her family, and it was a Sunday morning at church. And I heard a message from the minister that uh, just was just answering questions that I was asking, existential questions, philosophical questions. And, and I got thinking about the fact that, that one day I would die, and if really intelligent people believe in the existence of God, uh, maybe I'm wrong. As, a, as an atheist, and, and, and at least I ought to, to reach out. And I heard this message of God's grace and his love and his forgiveness, and uh, I remember sitting in my sports car on the side of the road at 17 years old, and I thought about, uh, I, could, I could get hit by a drunk driver, I could die today, and if, and if what that man said is true, uh, I'm not going to heaven. Uh, because of my attitude. You know, I, I was the big man on campus. I was Mike Seaver on Growing Pains, and, and uh, everything was on my terms. But I understood that a relationship with God would have to be on his terms. Um, he's the creator. And so I remember praying and asking God to, to show me the way. And somebody gave me a Bible. I started to read it. I started to go to church and asked a million questions. Um, let's listen to guys like Ravi Zacharias, who uh, I, I loved the interview that you had with him. Uh, listening to guys like John MacArthur and, uh, and, and others who really got me, uh, I was captivated by the message of the gospel and I wanted to live my life in a way that was different saying thank you to the one that gave me air to breathe, water to drink, and, uh, and I was 17. So as a 17-year-old kid trying to figure out your own identity, I, I know I, I, I ruffled some feathers. I know that I may have been like a bull in a china shop. My, my words may not have been seasoned with all the grace that they should have at 17, but I was trying to figure out, how do I do this? I, I didn't grow up like this. How do I honor God uh, in an industry that doesn't always look to accomplish the same goal? How did your parents react to, to you moving in this direction? Well, it was interesting because my mom had gone to church as a little girl, uh, but my dad didn't want us to go to church. He wanted us to sort of, you know, figure it out ourselves. Uh, and so she was thrilled. She was like, great, I would love to go to church. But the problem was my mom and dad were separated at the time. And providentially, this news of me going to church actually brought my dad to church, and my mom was like, you're not going to, the, to church with the kids without me. I'm coming back. And so that actually was one of the things that I think added to them uh, reconciling their relationship. Wow. And, and then we were all coming together, and we were praying together and going to church together, and it was a really beautiful, positive thing in our family. That's an amazing thing. So how were you received in the industry when, when you decided to make this move? I mean, both my parents work in the industry. I spend a lot of time around people in the industry. Mm. Uh, I know that when my mom, she has four, there are four kids in our family, and she works at, at a very high level in terms of business production. I remember when she would go to events and people would ask how many kids she had, and she'd say four. People would lose their minds. They would freak out. That's so many kids? So many kids. Yeah. And then we'd be in the Orthodox Jewish community where I spend my life. Like, what happened? Where are the other seven? Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so come what, on, you guys. Get with it. So what, what was the reception like to, to, your, to your move? Well, um, I would say that there were there were some people who had a healthy concern, a natural healthy concern. You know, when you hear of teen celebrities, child actors, often things enter into their life that make them go wrong. And, you know, that can be very concerning. So it was like, what is he into? What's going on? But it was kind of funny because really I think the changes were, I just wasn't dropping as many F-bombs. You know, I wasn't uh, going to the same parties and I, and I wasn't interested in some of the stuff that my friends were interested in. And, uh, I think over time, it's really served me well. So there may be some parts uh, that I, that I uh, had to uh, pass on because of content or, or conscience issues, but at the end of the day, look at me. I'm sitting here with Ben Shapiro on your show, 
married for 29 years. I have six kids. I'm working on projects that I'm passionate about, and uh, I'm trying to spread a message of of life and light. And uh, I think all that is because God has pointed me in a direction that I think works. Did, did the offers start to change? And I've talked to a lot of conservatives in the industry, and you can see for some of them, they'll say, no, it didn't really change. I, I'm still getting the same offers. I remember talking to Patty Heaton about this, mm. my friends. And, and Patty, uh, I said to her, you know, have you lost parts because of this and because she's so pro-life and outspokenly so? And she said, I don't think so, but let me call you back. She called me back 48 hours later. She said, yeah, I just found out I lost seven specific parts because, because of, of this. this. Because of this. So did you feel any blowback from folks in the industry, or is it something where it was just sort of a natural progression toward more parts you wanted to do? I think, I, I think it's the latter. I think that there were doors that were opening up that were just fantastic. So um, I wanted to do, I, I, I guess I began to see, I always wanted to be a doctor. I could say it this way. I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a surgeon. My plan was to go to college, go to medical school. And this acting thing took off when I was nine years old. By 14, I was on growing pains. By the time I, I graduated high school, uh, doors were opening for an acting career, and I thought I might as well keep this, this career going. And the doors that were opening were lining up with what was happening to me on the inside. I wanna be about things that promote faith. I wanna be about things that promote family and marriage. And uh, the movie Fireproof came up, and that was a chance to be a part of a, of a really cool, inspiring movie. Uh, I was part of a, a, a documentary called Monumental, which explored the, the founding principles of our forefathers, the pilgrims, and I retraced their escape route out of uh, England to Holland, where they spent all those years with their pastor before coming over on the Mayflower. And uh, so it wasn't ever like I felt that people's disagreements with my faith or my, my, my values was inhibiting my career. I felt like my clearer direction of where I wanted to go was uh, lining up with the doors that were opening. And, and, and here I am uh, looking in the rearview mirror saying, this has been awesome. So how did you not get screwed up? I mean, I know a lot of kids who are child actors. My cousin actually was, was a child star, Mara Wilson. She was in uh, Matilda and, and, Miracle, oh, yeah. and, and uh, Miracle on 34th Street and all that. Yeah. Very sweet person. Um, haven't talked to her in a while though, but, but a, lo a lot of other people who start off as child actors have serious problems in their lives. And you see these, these horror stories all over the media all the time. So why didn't that happen to you? Well, Ben, you got to remember, um, as far as me not being all screwed up, I'm an actor. I could be faking this whole thing. <laughs> and so uh, I could really be a mess on the inside and break down after we turn off the cameras. Uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, I have friends, contemporaries, people that I worked with growing up that uh, have had things happen to them that didn't happen to me. I'm fortunate in some ways. They've made choices that are different than the choices that I've made. Um, but in the end, I think I I was surrounded by some good people. The cast of Growing Pains was great. Alan and Joanna and Tracy and Jeremy and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. And uh, th it was like, we were really like a family. And and you know, it, even to the point where, you know, people didn't want to smoke on the set. People didn't want to be, to be uh, cussing on the set because there was kids there. And that combined, I think, with my mom and dad, just uh, really just being there. My dad's a school teacher. He taught uh, physical education and mathematics for 30, 35 years. Um, and my mom was just always there with us. Uh, and I think those things sort of laid a foundation. Uh, but being a teenager in Hollywood is, is a pretty dicey road to take. And I think that's where faith in God kicked in and pointed me in a different direction. And, and I, I took the road less traveled, so to speak. But again, I, I think that sense of, wow, I'm, I'm really 
blessed to have this life and I want to live it in a way that honors uh, the one who gave it to me. And I think that kept me on track more than anything. Do you still keep in touch with people who you were on the show with? Oh yeah. Yeah, Jeremy comes over and cooks every once in a while. He's a chef, he's awesome. And uh, I see Tracy and Jeremy probably the most of, of them. As you know, Alan Thicke passed away. Uh, Joanna's up in, in Santa Barbara. Uh, but we're still friends and uh, uh, we love seeing each other when we do have the chance. So you've been making you know Christian content and conservative content, or at least a traditionally oriented family content yeah. uh, for a while. Why do you think it is that, that it's been left to sort of non-mainstream outlets in Hollywood to do all of that? It's been a, a constant source of frustration for a lot of conservatives that I know that the studios will spend hundreds of millions of dollars on movies that have an incredibly select audience of apparently very blue people living in very blue areas. And they just ignore an entire swath of people who believe in religious faith. And that's left to sort of smaller studios to distribute. Yeah. Fireproof is, of course, the best example of this, a movie that was made on a shoestring budget and then goes on to do $30 million at the box office because Hollywood completely ignores this entire segment of the American population. It's, it's perplexing, isn't it? Um, I travel all around the country um, uh, teaching on the subject of marriage and parenting because I think family is so important. I think, I think when the family crumbles, the nation crumbles. And what I find everywhere that I go is that uh, there are people of faith, I, I call it the family of faith everywhere, who believe uh, in the kinds of values and, and, and think that character and virtue is essentially important, um, more so than politics, more so than the economy, more so than these other things. And uh, I don't know why there aren't more projects like this, but I think that there are becoming more and more of these things. Uh, more, more with technology being the way that it is, you don't have to depend on a studio distribution system. You don't have to depend on studio funding. You can grab a camera and you can have a YouTube channel and you can start making stuff. Um, more independent movies are coming around this way. Uh, I would think, actually, I would love to ask you that, why you think. I, I wonder if there aren't political reasonings behind all of that. Well, I mean, I, I certainly think there are. I wrote a book in 2014 about the TV industry called Primetime Propaganda. About the, and mm. I, I went and interviewed probably 100 different executives and producers and creators on, yeah. on TV shows. And, and they, many of them would say openly that they had legitimate scorn for people in the middle of the country with whom they disagreed on, on these, these sorts of areas. They felt that the real issues that were perplexing people were, were not issues of faith. That wasn't, that though those weren't the people they were speaking to. And a mm. lot of that was because the, I think the artistic endeavor, you know, from where I sit, very much seems to be, in, from people I was talking to, reflective of the people who surround you. So when I talk to some yeah. of the creators of Friends, which is a lifestyle completely foreign to my own and foreign to a lot of people in the middle of the country, right? People who are in their early 30s, acting like they're 17 years old, living yeah. in an apartment together, all single. Right. They have a kid at one point out of wedlock. What could the kid disappears for several years. <laughs> the kid sort of shows up randomly several seasons later, and, and that's treated as perfectly normal. They even make a joke of it in the show. And I remember talking to Myra Kaufman, who is one of the creators of Friends. Yeah. And, and she said, right, but that was, those are the people who, I, who I'm surrounded by. And so, in yeah. other words, the, the bubble that you live in really defines the people who you're speaking to. And so yeah. because the, the creative industry is drawn so much from LA, New York, San Francisco, yes. and so little from Ohio and Iowa, That's right. there, there just aren't a lot of stories that are being told from Ohio and Iowa, which is why there's this broad kind of gap in the market. So, so, so what a, seems like there's such fertile ground for so many of these projects with this underserved market. And that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, I would love to be a part of uh, more movies, more television shows, documentaries, live events. Uh, I love being in front of people. So I love traveling. I love getting on stage. I love, I love performing, I think, probably because I was on Growing Pains all those years. Um, but I find that people are looking for 
things to, nobody wants to fail at family, right? Nobody, nobody goes to the altar thinking, hey, if this whole thing blows up, I'm okay with it. We want marriage to work. We want parenting to work, and parenting is hard. Uh, my wife and I have six children. Uh, four of them are adopted, and so we have, all, we have a very diverse uh, group of people in our home, and uh, I think people want and appreciate things that help them uh, live life in a way that, that just causes people to flourish, families to flourish, and the nation to flourish. So I'm going to ask you about the, the family and parenting stuff, which is really where you're, you're putting most of your time these days. But first, you've heard about cryptocurrency and you thought, that sounds weird. Crypto and currency, why are they in the same word? Well, the reason they're in the same word is because effectively speaking, what cryptocurrency is, it is a digital way for you to protect your assets. Why? What is it? Well, they've created a thing called blockchain, and then they create a cryptocurrency, and then governments can't manipulate how much that currency is worth. It is just up to the free markets. Well, with eToro, you get access to the world's most popular cryptocurrencies with transparent trading fees all in one easy-to-use app. eToro is smart crypto trading made easy. eToro's social trading platform has over 11 million traders. They facilitate over a trillion dollars in trading volume per year globally. You can access the world's best cryptocurrencies. They've got 15 different coins available. They've got low and transparent fees. And you can try before you trade. They'll give you a virtual portfolio with a $100,000 budget. So you can see how this thing works before you put your own money into it. You'll never miss a trading trend with charts and pricing alerts. Now, I think that cryptocurrency is definitely worth considering as part of your portfolio. Again, it's a good way for you to defray some of the risk of being in the stock market, for example. Sign up today at etoro.com slash Shapiro. That's E-T-O-R-O.com slash Shapiro. So you've been married for, what, 20, you said 29 years? 29 right? years. Okay, and you met your wife on the set. Yeah, I met right? my wife on the set. Uh, she actually played Mike Seaver's girlfriend. I like to say that I stole Mike Seaver's girlfriend away from him. <laughs> you know, uh, he had excellent taste. And we've been married for 29 years. Uh, she's from New York. I'm from Los Angeles, East Coast, West Coast. So it was sort of like a, a meeting of two worlds. But uh, when I met her, I found that she was not only beautiful on the outside, uh, she was just beautiful on the inside. She, uh, she loved God. She loved kids. She loved family. And we, we hit it off. And within uh, a year, we were married. <laughs> and so how old were you when you guys got married? Well, I was 20 when I got married. So I engaged, uh, proposed, I think it was 19. Wow. Yeah. So I was just like, if I don't ask this girl to marry me, somebody else will. And so <laughs> I, cannot, I cannot lose her. Oh, yeah. No, that, 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 by the way, folks, this is where we, I mean, we agree on a lot of stuff, but this is one area where we totally agree. If you ever find the girl who you think you're going to marry, just propose like right then. Just, so how long did it. you guys date before, before you were proposing? Well, um, I think it was probably maybe, maybe, maybe six to nine months. Yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't all that long. Yeah. But I just, I just knew that like, just, I, I, I'm not ever, ever going to do better than this. Exactly. No, you, you took your time. I, I proposed to my wife three months in. And three so, months oh, in? Oh, yeah. Wait, yeah wait I, I, that's the way it's done. 12 years coming up in July. So that's the... Yeah, Congratulations. I mean, this is, this, it, it's so funny. When we, when we got engaged, I had told her I love you a month before she said I love you back to me. So it was a real oh. awkward month, right? Yeah. So I would finish every conversation. I'd say, I love you. And she'd say, okay. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason was because as soon as she said, I love you back, she knew that this was going to be a serious thing. Exactly. So she said, I love you back. And naturally, the first words out of my mouth were, so let's get married. So let's get married. Right? And she said, no, let's take our time. It'll be fun. I said, you understand. This is not fun. Okay, like the, the fun yeah. part is like when we get married. That's the fun part because now yeah. we're committed. Now I don't have to worry about everything falling apart. Right yeah. now, this is extremely nerve-wracking. So if we can just right. get this thing off the table, that's that would right. be great. I mean, I, I've never understood the, the, the desire to sort of delay marriage once you found the person who you think you want to be with. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, this, this is a, a little random, but I, ha I have a, one of my son's friends uh, came home 
from college and his, uh, his girlfriend had come home from college and over Christmas I was saying to them, hey, how's things going? They're like, they're great, you know, uh, we, we, we wanna get engaged, we wanna get married next year and, and, and we're both gonna take our next semester of school in Europe and I was like, wait a minute, you're gonna get married a year from now but you're going to Europe like next semester? I'm like, there's a way too romantic of a place to not go while you're married, like, come on. <laughs> and so he actually, uh, made the plans and I married them like a week later. Wow. Like no joke, before well Christmas vacation was over. And I'm not even a minister, so. <laughs> but I, I got ordained. We went to the, to, uh, to the presidential library and, uh, and it was drizzling rain outside, but we just walked up with some flowers and uh, you know, I pronounced you man and wife and poof, off they went to, to Paris. That is awesome. So you've been married for almost three decades. So what are your keys to marriage, to making a marriage last? Because obviously you've operated in the Hollywood world where marriages last up on an average about 13 weeks. So yeah. what exactly I, are the keys here? I know, I, I say it all the time, like I've been married 29 years, which is like 290 in Hollywood years, <laughs> right? Uh, and it's mostly because I have a very forgiving wife. I have an angel wife. Uh, she truly is amazing. Ask anybody who knows her. Um, but uh, you know, I, I, think, I think it's the thing we all know. At the end of the day, we can see selfishness in our spouse much easier than we can see it in ourselves. And when I'm focusing on me and my, and my needs and my wants and all that stuff, that's that's the perfect conditions for a rebellion. Uh, but I think when I'm when I say, you know what, it's you before me. Uh, how can I serve you? Um, if I can do that, and I need God's help to do that because I'm selfish by nature, then I I promote a revival in my marriage. That's what I want. And so uh, with this marriage and parenting conference that I that I'm that I'm hosting. Uh, those are the kinds of things we talk about. Forgiveness, how do you cherish your spouse? Uh, you know, me, misery, others, joy. Uh, those are the kinds of things that are hard because it goes against the, the, the sort of the selfish nature within us. You know, I deserve this. What have you done for me? You know, I deserve better than that. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, I know that I want, I'm still a work in progress. I'm not finished. Don't put the inspector, inspection sticker on me yet. Uh, and so I don't want to do that to you either. What's been the most common problem that you've encountered from people at your seminars talking to you about marriage? Most common problem? <sighs> Selfishness, infidelity. You know, I mean, that's, that's just such a hard one, right? You know, when, when, when something as sacred and intimate as a marriage relationship gets, gets violated in that kind of a way, it's, it's, it's so hard to put the pieces back. It's so hard to trust again. You get wounded and injured. The walls go up. And uh, those are often... I think the most difficult things. Obviously, communication and money issues are, are big ones, but uh, it's interesting. Uh, you know, often when, when we're dating our spouse uh, or our girlfriend or our boyfriend, uh, you know, if we don't have any money and we're just sitting on the floor of an empty apartment eating pizza out of a box with no money to buy anything better, we're good. That's fine. We don't have money problems. You know, we can look at each other and gaze into one another's eyes for hours without saying a word, and we got no communication problems. But when selfishness creeps in, you know, and it's like when you're spending the money that I made and, and, and all of a sudden communication's a problem, intimacy's a problem, money's a problem. And so I think it's the selfishness thing. It's the me monster. It always ends up being the culprit. Yeah, not to give uh, Hebrew biblical scriptural analysis. Please but the, do. The, the word, for, the word for, uh, for love in Hebrew is ahava, and the root of that word is hav, which is the same as to give. So the root of, the root of love is to give. 
Um, meaning that That's obviously if, if you're giving first, then then your marriage is okay. I've always felt that when, when people call into my show and ask about this sort of thing, the first thing that I always say is, if you have all the expectations of yourself but none of your spouse, you'll have a good marriage. And if you married the right person, then that won't ruin the marriage. People seem to think that yeah. if you expect a lot of yourself and nothing from your spouse, your spouse is going to go like eat you're, Cheetos you're in the corner right, and, and let everything go. But if you married the right person, they're thinking the same thing, that the expectation is on them. And they yeah. don't expect of you. And that's that's good. That means that there are two people who are ready to answer any problem as opposed to two people, neither of whom wants to answer the problem and both of whom are pointing fingers. Yeah, that's such a good point. And, and that's one of, the, one of the messages that came out of that movie Fireproof was even if you haven't married the right person, if, if I can try to get my part right, maybe... Maybe I, I will be used as sort of a vessel to bring about change in my spouse over time. I can't force it, but maybe I can lead by example, and, and that'll bring some sort of transformation to my relationship if I'm patient. I mean, th- this is going to sound kind of sexist, but it's not meant to be. I, I, I firmly believe my wife believes this, too, so it's not that sexist, we, we, that the, the strength of a good marriage really relies on the man, meaning that m- women tend to be more attuned to what it takes to make a good marriage. Mm. Men tend to be less attuned to that. And so mm. the marriage is only going to be as good as the man is toward the woman he's and the, the man link. is toward the marriage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so if, so if he's strong, then you're going to have a strong marriage. I, exactly. So you have six kids, which is unthinkable to me. I have two right now. <laughs> I am full up, and we have a third coming in March. So we're not quite full up, but I, that's going to be interesting. And uh, hopefully we'll have more after that. But that's you have awesome. six, mm. and they're all within, you said, a six-year span, a seven-year span? Yeah, they're all about a one year apart. So when they were little, just think, of, just think of this. So, you know, my wife's got the double stroller, the front pack, the backpack while I'm traveling at work. So, so one's six, one's five, four, three, two, and a newborn. <laughs> right? Like, so th- th- this is the kind of amazing wife that I'm married to. And, uh, and now- Would you have any help? I mean, I just have to ask. Like, you, you know, uh, I mean, my mom would come over sometimes, <laughs> but we never, actually, we never had a nanny. And really, it, it, it's, we could have used some help, but I think Chelsea was just always so all in that it was like, that's what she wanted her hands full of all the time. And she still does. She thinks that that's like the most beautiful, wonderful thing in the whole world. How could I ask for any more to being a mom? And so, uh, and to be there for all those little moments is just something she treasured, which I'm thankful for. Uh, and as they've gotten older, I'm just warning you, it doesn't really get easier. So if you oh, think, it, okay, <laughs> it's different. Um, you're not up feeding them, you know, bottles. You're up worrying that they're going to get home alive at night. So now our kids are 22, 21, 20, 19, 18, and 17. Uh, so one's married, some have moved out, they're driving, you have boyfriends. It, it's, it's a whole new world. You said four of those kids are adopted. So how did you guys make the decision to adopt? Well, my wife is actually an adopted child herself. And so that was always a a, a beautiful part of her story. And uh, when we had been married for about six years, we talked about having a family. And we were working a lot uh, when we first got married. And then... uh, we said, well, what about adoption? Like, why, why, why don't we uh, look into adoption? And I thought that was a great idea. I thought, I don't need to be the DNA donor. There's kids who need a dad and, and a mom. So we got in touch with an agency and we adopted our son, Jack. And it was such a great experience uh, for us and for, for them that uh, they said there's another uh, little girl that is uh, needing a home. And so Bella was adopted. And then a year later, it was Anna. And then it was Luke. And so we had four. And then all of a sudden, uh, Chelsea says to me, hey, I think the kitchen, the, the bathroom sink is broken. Would you go look at it? And so that was my chance to strap on my tool belt and be, score some husband points, walk in there. And uh, I look at the sink. I couldn't tell what was wrong. I look underneath the sink. I couldn't see what's wrong. And I, I go up to the faucets and I see this little, this little like popsicle stick shaped test that says positive. And I'm like, what? 
what, 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 what are you trying to say? <laughs> She's like, I'm pregnant. And so uh, then Olivia was born. And then a year later, the sink broke again and uh, James was born. So now, then we have sick. We said, okay, all right, we gotta, we, gotta, we gotta think about what's going on here, why this is happening, and we need I mean, to make a decision. you could have 20, we'll get that right. Exactly, but we stopped at a half dozen. Yeah, so what are some of the lessons in parenting? This one I definitely need to take from you. Because right now, as I say, I have a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and one who has yet to be born. And it's, as you say, it gets more complicated. It's, it's yeah. different. It's, it's easier in some ways because you don't worry so much the kids are going to stick a fork in the, in the electric socket. Right. But at the same time, they have new problems. They have new issues. They're oh, cropping up all the I mean, time. They, you, know, you go to school and then all of a sudden you, you import everybody else's problems uh, when they come home. Yeah. I mean, what are, what are, the, what are some of the pieces of advice you have for, for parents as the kids start to, to get older? Well, um, thank you for asking. Uh, I, I'm certainly not an expert in this, um, but one of the things that the, the three keys that Chelsea and I have always come back to <clears throat> when we when we're up at night going, oh, I'm a horrible parent. You know, ha have I done this right? We come back to these three things, and and one is, I want to strive to be the kind of person I want my children to become. Uh, more is caught than taught. Kids naturally play follow the leader. So your son, your daughter are going to be looking at you going, what does daddy do? What does mom do? And they like to copy us. You know, that's why he likes to walk around in your shoes or likes to, to, to pick up your briefcase. Um, and so if I want my kids to be joyful, if I want my kids to be compassionate, if I want my kids to trust God in difficult circumstances, model it for them. Show them what it looks like so that they don't have to figure it out or imagine it. They can say, oh, yeah, that's what my dad did. That's what my mom did. And when I mess up, ask them for forgiveness. Some people think that would be weak to, to ask kid, uh, forgiveness from, from your kids, but that's actually modeling for them the strength that you need to be humble when you make a mistake. You know, uh, those are the kinds of things, uh, along with keeping their, keeping their heart, understanding that relationship is the most important thing. Uh, Sometimes a house can easily turn into a correctional facility, you know, and it's just, you know, say please, say thank you, sit down, don't do that. Uh, when, when really, while those are important, at the end of the day, we're all going to make mistakes. And, and, and if I lose the heart of my child, I've lost the battle. They're going to ice me out. They're not going to listen. They're going to go somewhere else where they feel like somebody listens, cares for them. And so keeping that relationship strong uh, through the good times, through the difficult times, I think is, is paramount. And then point them to truth. You know, I mean, the kids get inundated with so much error, with so much, uh, you know, right is wrong, wrong is right. And for me, I go to God's word, those, those, those principles, those ancient truths that I can always go to. Um, you know, you, you talked about the Hebrew scriptures and the book of Proverbs. How, how amazing is the book of Proverbs to go back in there and say, what are the time-tested principles that always produce uh, blessing and good things and protection. I want my kids to learn those things and know that that truth is not uh, relative uh, when it comes to morality and things like that. Truth is something that uh, they can build their life on. I mean, th this seems to be one of the areas where our society has really gone off the rails. Is this belief that we should raise our kids in sort of Rousseauian fashion, just let them free in the wilderness, and then they can discover their own values? I, I've noticed that that society particularly these days, wants to do this with everything related to boys and girls. They want to suggest that kids are going to basically form their own values in every particular way. But it's not just that. It's, it's pretty much with everything. They find mm -hmm. their own religious values. And that if you inculcate any sort of values in your kids, you're actually acting as a tyrant. That what you actually should be doing is allowing their brains that are, that are 
unformed to just experience the world, take in those perceptions, and then form their own value systems. Uh, mm. it, it seems to be not working particularly well for the society at large. So what are, what are some values that, that you want to make sure Wow. I mean, yeah, I mean, that, that doesn't work for any other, any other discipline, right? Like if you're going to go into law, do you say, hey, figure it all out? I know you're going to go to law school. You're going to learn, understand the principles. Um, uh, you know, people are going to go to war. You're going to train them on, on the principles of how to, how to use, use, you know, the weapons and things like that, not just figuring it out on their own. So um, the values that I want to teach my kids, uh, I think are, are values like trusting in God, virtue and character, uh, and considering other people more important than yourself. I, I think those are the nation, uh, those are the values that, that not only make human beings flourish individually, make them, uh, pleasant people, but it makes families flourish. It makes marriages flourish. And I think that's what makes a nation flourish. I think these are the principles that our country was built on. Um, and every time that we get away from those things, uh, we suffer and, uh, you know, we, we, we go the wrong direction and we can tell by the consequences that the law of cause and effect that this isn't working well. So I want to teach my kids those, those ancient truths and those those Judeo-Christian principles and that worldview that led to the freest, most blessed, and prosperous nation the world's ever known. So in a second, I want to ask you about the biggest mistake you think you've made as a parent. Okay. That's kind of a rough question. I'll ask you that in one second. But first, how often have you seen these horrible news stories where some actress gets hacked and then her nude photos are online? Well, two things you should know about that. One, do not take photos of yourself in the nude on your phone. It's just dumb. And two, anyone can be hacked. If you think hackers only target large companies to get your information, wrong. I use ExpressVPN myself to safeguard my personal data online. So should these actresses. According to recent reports, hackers can make up to $1,000 from selling someone's personal information on the dark web, making people like me and you easy and lucrative targets. ExpressVPN, it's an app for your computer and phone. It secures and encrypts your data so you can have peace of mind every time you go online. The app connects with just one click. It's lightning fast. Here's the best part. ExpressVPN costs less than 7 bucks a month. Listen, if a breach can happen to Capital One or to Scarlett Johansson, it can easily happen to an individual like you. Protect yourself with ExpressVPN, the number one VPN rated by TechRadar, CNET, The Verge, and countless others. Again, you should protect yourself with ExpressVPN. Why would you leave your data out there for anybody to grab? Use my special link, expressvpn.com slash Ben right now. You can arm yourself with an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show. Keep your information safe. That's expressvpn.com slash Ben for an extra three months free. Let's talk about like the biggest mistakes that you've made as a parent. So for me, well, one of the things that I've been noticing is the scariest thing in the world is that my kids take in everything I do. It's, it's terrifying to me. This is only yeah. beginning to dawn on me now because before <laughs> they were, you know, two and four, one and three, and they weren't really taking everything in. Now, if I let a curse word slip, the chances that, that it will be in the next sentence spoken by my child are at least 127%. And, and so I've been noticing that every bad thing that I do immediately comes back to me. And so it highlights all the worst parts of you. You don't actually get to see the best parts of you so much. You get to see all the worst things that you do immediately mirrored back yeah. at you. And it's scaring the living out of me, to be honest with you. Isn't so, that hilarious? So you've been a parent a lot longer than I have. So what, what, are, what have been some of the things that you wish you hadn't done? <sighs> I, I feel like I've been... Tr I've done a lot of bad things. I've done. I've made a lot of mistakes. See, you need to ask this question to my wife. She could. <laughs> she could tell you, or, or my son, James. Is he's sitting right over here? He could probably tell you the, the biggest mistakes I've made. Um, but I'm so gun shy to really talk about mistakes that I've made on on a worldwide on the worldwide web because everyone loves to exploit those things. You know, you slip yep. up with one thing, and it's just like, look at how horrible that. So 
I think I need a little bit more time. Yeah, no worries. I mean, I, I hear that. I mean, it is it is a very censorious culture right now. I won't put kid pictures of my kids up. Yeah. I, was, I was talking this morning on social media about how my my kids have finally gotten into Star Wars, which is fun because now yeah, we can yeah. we can share that. And so we've been having lightsaber battles, me and my my five year old, nice. and we have we have it all on video, and it's it's adorable. But I can't put that up on social media because right. people are horrible, and they they will go after your kids, and it really is terrible. Yeah. So you're somebody who's been in the public eye a lot longer than I have. And how how are you able to maintain Protection. I mean, this is really an advice question. How are you able to maintain protection of your kids being in the public eye as much as you are? Somehow, we were able to really just not have pictures of our kids or anything on the internet for the longest time. Now, once our kids had phones and they've got their own Instagram account, you know, they're wanting to post as much as as, as they can. Uh, and now that our kids are older, it's a bit different. But but yeah, we've, we're very similar to the way that, that you and your wife feel about that. We wanted to protect our kids. I'm like, if someone's gonna get upset with me, get upset with me. If, if someone wants to show up at, you know, and, and you know, have a conversation with me, like I don't want you to know where I live and actually you know, have my kids answer the door or have you come after my kids or say mean things about them. So we, we, just, we just kept that real quiet and I was really diligent about it. And I, I think it, it, it turned out okay. So I think when people look at religious people, like I'm, I'm a person of faith, you're a person of faith, but when people look at religious people, they tend to think, at least in the secular community, look at that happy idiot, look at that, look at that guy, he's just so happy all the time, doesn't he understand that we are all going to suffer, that we are all going to die, that things are bad in the world, Have they, haven't they ever struggled with faith? And it's a point of high irritation for me as a person of faith, because I've yet to meet a person who's actually religious, who's never struggled at all with faith. So what are some of the ways in which you've struggled with your own faith over the years? And the ways that I've struggled with my faith over the years, um, you know, I, I th- I've never wanted to be someone who believed in fairy tales or be accused of some as of be accused um, of being someone who believes in fairy tales. And uh, coming from an atheistic background or just a sort of like secular humanist background, um, I wanted to really make sure. And so I, I, I felt like, have I really ob- uh, examined all of the evidence? How, how can there be someone like Sam Harris? Or how can I have these other people who are so intelligent? Clearly, uh, you know, they, they've got a size 10 brain and, and mine's not that that size. But I believe that that if I sincerely do the best that I can, if I have faith, if I believe and I ask God, I believe he's kind enough to reveal himself to me. And so I have struggled with the sort of the, the, the intellect and the reason versus, versus the faith. And I don't think that they're pitted against one another by any means. Um, in fact, I think they, they go very well together. But sometimes I get into pitting them against one another and wondering, you know, uh, is, there, is there some stone I've not yet uh, uncovered to to so unravel everything that I that I believe, and uh, the more and more that I examine those things and I ask those deep questions, um, the more and more I believe that my faith in God has been well placed. And when, when it comes to your kids, are all of your kids people of faith as well? Um, you know, I think they're, they're yes, I would say so. They certainly grew up uh, with a lot of faith in our home. But that's something that's so personal that I can say we go to church or we don't go to church or, or this or that. But in terms of like a, a, a living, vibrant relationship with God where I talk to God, uh, I, I believe that God directs me. Uh, that's something that's so personal that I think it's, it's sort of on a, you know, it's, it's something that's in seed form with some of our kids. And it's something that's maturing and bearing fruit with others. So you talked a little bit earlier about the values that undergird the country. When we look at the state of the country right now, it's, it's so divisive. Everybody seems to be at each other's throats. What do you think is the biggest problem facing the country in terms of the country coming? It feels like it's coming apart. 
Wow, I, I want to ask you that question. <laughs> no, you're, you're, you're more positioned to, to answer that. And, and, and I, feel, I feel like maybe my role in the public square, you know, sometimes I wonder, you know, why does anybody care what, what Mike Seaver has to say after all of these years? You know, why am I sitting here with, with you? Uh, and, and, and I think that, that I've been given a platform and, and, and perhaps my role is to continue to point people not toward the specific details of, of what's getting everybody fighting with one another, but point them higher to the larger principles at play that historically have given us a country where we can debate about these things. And we can have respectful conversations and discourse about these things uh, without killing each other over it. And we have freedom of speech and freedom of religion and, and we have these things that we all love. And, and so I'm not sure if I could point to one particular issue, but I can point to the principles that will solve that issue. And I think uh, that's why I'm trying to focus my energy not on everything that interests me or fascinates me, but on the areas where I think I'm uniquely positioned to make a difference. And that's why I made a, a, a documentary called Monumental or a movie like Fireproof, and I'm, I'm doing these marriage and parenting things. You still have a lot of friends in, in Hollywood, obviously. And are there, I, I know there are some conservatives in Hollywood. Are, are there any religious people? Like, what, would people be shocked to learn how many religious people, or would they shocked to be learn how few religious people there are in Hollywood? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, I think that, I mean, it's, it's amazing to me when you grow up in Los Angeles, you, you have this impression that there are no, not very many people of faith not just in Los Angeles, but like around the world, like, like atheism is dominating the world. And that's just not true. Um, the, the statistics that I've read are that, that well over 90% of the world is very religious, uh, different religions, but people are people of faith. Uh, and so here in Hollywood, I think that there are more people of faith than you would think, or that, that people would think, but many of them are very cautious about expressing that faith. Uh, many people think that like what I've done, like talking about my faith would be sort of suicide for a career. Yeah, but I have faith in a, in a faithful God who's opened up doors so that I can continue doing what I love, and I think it's really helping people. And, and so I think more and more people of faith you'll see come, be coming out of the closet, and not just in Hollywood, but all around the, the country and the world, people are making projects where faith is at the center because it does well at the box office. And so I think that's encouraging and drawing people out rather than being afraid of the faithless in Hollywood. I mean, this is one of the, the questions that I've gotten a lot from conservative friends of mine in Hollywood is, how quiet should I keep this? Should I come out of the closet yeah. and just be conservative? And honestly, I've had to say, it's, it's a, it really is a question for you to answer because only yeah. you know the risk factors involved with your career and, with your, and, and yeah. losing an income and, and with your kids and all of this. But I mean, you do see the social sanctions that are brought to bear on people just for going to a particular church. I remember Chris Pratt going to a church that was considered pro-traditional marriage. Suddenly, he was getting all sorts of flack, even though he'd never made a statement on the issue yeah. one way or another. And so the idea of people in Hollywood just beginning to come out and say, yes, I'm a person of faith. I go to church regularly. I'm a Bible mm. believer. It seems like the social sanctions are incredibly strong. So what would your advice be to people who haven't done what you've done and just come out and said, listen, here's who I am and here's what I believe and deal with it? Personally, you only live once. Right? You, you only live once. And I would say, go with your convictions. You know, you, I don't want to look back and go, God, I wish I could do that over again. You know, I just, I, I wish I had some courage and I wish I didn't care so much about what other people thought. Um, I, I, I care about people, which is why I want to try to speak the truth and live the truth in a, in a compassionate way. Um, and if I don't do that, I'm really not loving people. I'm really just sort of protecting myself and my career, which is 
selfish. So I, I say, go with your convictions. You only live once. Like, do what you believe you're here to do. So I, I don't mean to sound selfish, but you brought me a gift. I, I've, I've heard that there is a gift. Yes, I did. I'm, I'm, I'm very eager to give it to you. Okay, excellent. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that is amazing and also large. That is incredible and large. And what, <laughs> what is this? Okay, so, so I'm gonna tell, I'm, I'll tell you what this is. So I made a documentary several years ago uh, called Monumental in which I retraced the escape route of the pilgrims. And the reason I made it was uh, not for political reasons, but as a dad, I'm going, our country is, is, seems to be like going down the tubes. So w- what do we need to do? Well, the left blames the right, the right blames the left, uh, the, the poor blame the rich, the rich blame the poor. And I'm thinking, why, why can't we just go back to what made this country so unique in the first place? So. I went and retraced the escape route of the pilgrims to figure out who they were, what did they do, why did they come here? And I learned that these were the the free-thinking, out-of-the-box, faithful people who came here to do something that that in their minds had not been tried successfully for 3,000 years since the ancient Hebrew Republic under the leadership of Moses. I mean, you know, they, they felt that the ancient Hebrews were given the divine constitution in the Torah, and they wanted to import those principles of liberty and justice to the new world. So uh, our pilgrim forefathers and foremothers left us what I call the, the, the secret sauce recipe for how to build a free and just society under the word of God. And they left it for us in the form of this monument, which the real one is 81 feet tall. It's 180 tons of solid granite. It's the largest granite monument in America, and it's invisible. Nobody knows it's there. It's hidden behind a forest of trees in Plymouth, Massachusetts today. And it spells out all the principles that you and I love. And this is a replica of it so that people could see it. Um, you've probably never heard of it. It's called the National Monument to the Forefathers. And I, I, I hired the Weta Workshop, who does all the sculpting oh, wow. for all yeah, the yeah. rings, to capture all of the detail. And uh, if I can, I'd yeah, love yeah, to please. just explain it to you. Please, I, I would love that. Okay. All right. This is awesome. I can't, I, I can't wait to explain this to you. So history tells us that our forefathers and foremothers believe this, that to have a, a functioning society that was free, you had to start with, what's it say right here? Faith. And faith is uh, the largest of all of these figures, and she's pointing to heaven, and she's got a book in her hand. It happens to be the Bible. That was the Geneva Bible brought over by the pilgrims on the Mayflower. Her feet are on a rock, and that's Pil- uh, Plymouth Rock. And uh, she has a star on her forehead representing wisdom. Uh, and so they would reason from the scriptures uh, to create their society. Now check this out. Faith is then expressed in these four key ways. Number one, it's first expressed through morality. And morality is uh, depicted as as a woman here holding the Ten Commandments in her left hand and uh, the scroll of Revelation in her right hand. And that represents both the Old and the New Testament. But they believe that morality was not something that could be imposed externally by a king or a tyrant. So on the left, it says evangelist. And they believed that, 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 that God's word needed to, be, needed to be proclaimed so that there was a transformation of the heart, that the grace of God would change you on the inside, so then you loved the standard on the outside. Once you had good morality, then you could make good laws in your nation. And there's the judge, he's sitting on his, uh, his chair, and he's holding the book of law, and his book is directly beneath the book in faith's hand, which is the scriptures, signifying that man's laws must line up under God's laws or they're not good laws. And on his right, it's justice. On his left, 
is mercy. So there had to be a balance between justice and mercy. Once you have civility in your, in your society, then you can educate your kids. And there's a, a mother there or, a, or a, a parent who's wearing the wreath of victory, holding the book of knowledge. And on her right, it goes right back to the book of Proverbs. Uh, there's the youth because they believe that if you train up your child in the way they should go, when they're old, and here's the old man with a, with a long white beard. He's holding a globe and a Bible. Uh, when he's old, he'll not depart from it. And his name is Wisdom. So he has a biblical worldview. Once you have that to the second and third generation, they believe you come up with the result, which is liberty. And that was both liberty internally mm. from sin, pride, arrogance, selfishness, and uh, liberty externally from tyrants and bad government. And uh, if you look, he's, the chains on his ankles and his wrists are broken. Tyranny has been overthrown. And his wife is here next to him. Her name is Peace, and she's holding a basket full of good things for her friends, her family, and her community. So this was the secret sauce recipe, and it's there for everybody to see. And, and these are the kinds of values that I love and I want to point people to. When was this built? This was actually completed in 1859, I believe. It took 50 years to build, and it was actually interrupted by a little thing called the Civil War. And uh, it was interesting because Abraham Lincoln was one of the very first contributors to the building of this monument. Hmm. And uh, there was a, an architect, Hammett Billings, uh, who actually did the drawings for Uncle Tom's Cabin. And it was, it was, it was an amazing time uh, that this was built. And uh, it is still the largest granite monument in America, and it's invisible. Nobody's ever heard of it. And you can't find it unless you know, unless I tell you where to go. That's unbelievable. So yeah. what is it about our culture that gets all this so wrong? I mean, they, the, the, now every Thanksgiving, there's a, there's a big fuss over the pilgrims and how the pilgrims were actually oppressors and how uh, this civilization coming to this, this hemisphere was, was a bad thing. Where, where are we missing the boat here? I'm not, I'm not sure exactly, Ben. I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. But I think that if, 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 I think often people find what they're looking for, you know, and, and if I'm looking for these kinds of principles, I can find them. I can find them particularly in history. And when I go back and I look in, at, at cultures and nations that abide by these kinds of principles and values, good things result. Every time we get away from them, uh, bad things result. So, uh, you know, if faith is in God uh, and liberty is the result, uh, boy, it, it, if we put our faith in the state or faith in the government or faith in, in something other than the kindest, most benevolent uh, person in the universe, I think what happens is it changes your morality. It changes the laws that you pass in your nation. You teach those things to your kids and you don't end up with liberty men as the result. You end up with uh, the, the lion of tyranny and liberty man's leg hanging out of the lion's mouth. <laughs> And I, I fear that, that so many nations have gone that way and that we may go the same if we don't get back to what works. Well, I'm gonna spend a moment figuring out where to put this in my house. I'm, I'm thinking my wife's I, nightstand. Like, like, I don't know, just she wakes up that. in the morning, she just looks right over and there it is. So I actually have a smaller one for you. <laughs> oh, I appreciate it, This is it. the okay. Mondo gigantic one. I, I, say, I have I one that's half this size. And uh, this one, I, is, I wanna give this one to the president. I wanna give one to the yeah. vice president, to all politicians, presidents of universities, um, ministers and parents who want to teach these things to their kids. What if I what if I use it as sort of an imposing intimidation factor for my children? So they 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 sin one day, they do something it, wrong, it could work. and they just wake up and they and it's right next to them. It's right next. To them. <laughs> <laughs> they open their eyes in the morning and there's there's faith just looking directly at I them. I see you. That, correct. Correct. It might work. <laughs> in a second, I want to ask you about 
the the kind of old conservative question whether whether culture is upstream of politics or politics is upstream mm. of culture. Mm. I'd ask you about that in just one second. First, are you tired? I'm tired. I'll tell you, I'm tired. And that means that right now, I would love nothing better than to go home and slip between my incredible bowl and branch sheets. Okay, these sheets are great. You never think about your sheets, right? You think about everything else. You think about the mattress, maybe the pillow and the temperature in the room. You never think about the sheets. The sheets will make a huge difference in how you sleep. And you're going to be sleeping on them every night. We could all use more sleep. And getting a great night's sleep is easier and more affordable than you think. You don't need a new expensive mattress or sleeping pills. You need to change the sheets. That's why you should check out Bowl and Branch. Everything Bowl and Branch makes, from bedding to blankets, it's made from pure 100% organic cotton. It means they start out super soft. They get even softer over time. You can buy directly from them. So you're essentially paying wholesale prices. Luxury sheets can cost up to $1,000 in the store. Bowl and Branch sheets, only a couple of hundred bucks. They're great. I mean, they're so good that I've literally replaced all of the sheets in my house with Bull and Branch. Shipping is free. You can try them for 30 nights. If you don't love them, send them back for a refund. That's not going to happen. You're going to want to keep them. To get you started, right now, my listeners get 50 bucks off your first set of sheets at bullandbranch.com. Promo code Ben. Go to bullandbranch.com today for 50 bucks off your first set of sheets. That's B-O-L-L and branch.com. Promo code Ben. These are the best sheets on the market. I know you don't think about sheets a lot, but now you are. So go get the good ones. Go to bullandbranch.com. Promo code Ben. Okay, so I want to ask you, because you're so engaged in, in the culture, whether you think that at this point, you know, the future of America rests in a change to culture or a change to politics. And this is really sort of a raging debate, even mm. within the right in, in recent days. Uh, one of my old mentors, Andrew Breitbart, used to say culture is upstream of politics, mm. that you got to work first on changing the culture. That's what Hollywood did so successfully. They changed the way that we think about the world, and then politics necessarily followed how we thought about the world. Mm. And then there are a lot of people who believe no, the culture has been largely lost, and the only way to restore the culture is by grabbing the high reins of politics and then trying to almost cram down your viewpoint or instill your viewpoint through the education system. What do you think? Do you think that if you're a conservative and you have 100 bucks to spend, you're going to give it away this year, should you be trying to put it into sort of politics, or should you be trying to put it into either your church mm. on the one hand or into like actual cultural pursuits that are not necessarily just your church? So being a guy who's in the entertainment industry— um, I'm not saying this just because I work in this space, but I really do think that Instagram and Facebook is influencing my children more than just about anything else that I can, uh, I can think of in the political world. So I think that, that politics is downstream of culture, as, you, as you've uh, mentioned. I think that the hearts and minds of young people are being formed and then they vote accordingly. They, they pull those people in and then they pass those laws accordingly. That's why I think that we need good people in the entertainment industry, in the places where stories are being told that are capturing the hearts and minds of people. So while people may say like, hey, let's, let's, let's get out of Hollywood, right? That's, that's a dark place. That's a dirty place. They, you know, they, they generate a lot of filth. Well, I, I think, I think it's, it's kind of like politics. Uh, you know, if you don't like it, change it. So come on in and we need people who are going to assume positions of leadership in the entertainment industry, in the storytelling world, because that's what our kids are listening to, the music and movies and television and the arts. And, and then they, they seem to want to, you know, bring those values to, to bear in, 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 in the legal world and in, in the political world. So when it comes to your own parenting, how did you engage your kids in entertainment? How did you decide what you were okay with your kids watching and what you weren't okay with your kids watching? Well, when, when our kids were, were little, we never wanted them to feel like they had celebrity parents. And so uh, while there would be an occasional, hey, hey, hey can I have your autograph? Uh, we really didn't bring our kids into that world. 
And um, accordingly, we didn't watch Growing, you know, they didn't, there wasn't a box set of Growing Pains episodes in our house that we watched. It was I Love Lucy, it was The Brady Bunch, and uh, my kids really, they really grew up on I Love Lucy. I mean, that, that's where mo- a lot of my kids, they, they, their sense of humor is, is, is Lucy. You know, she, she was just hilarious. Um, and then, uh, interestingly, none of my kids have really shown a strong interest in getting involved in the enter- entertainment industry. So my son, my son James, I don't know, he, the, the jury's still out. He, he still may be interested. He's, he's pretty much of, a, uh, of an entertainer and a ham, so he, he, he might follow in my footsteps. But, uh, but we never really embraced the, the Hollywood lifestyle and the Hollywood circles of friends. We kind of lived on the outskirts. We kind of live in more of a rural area for Los Angeles. And we spent our time outside in the mountains, hiking, going to the beach, uh, you know, playing in the mud with our kids, much more so than really being part of, of that entertainment industry scene. Well, one of the interesting debates that's broken out on the right is, is also a debate about sort of what is okay to watch as a religious person or as a conservative. So I have friends like David French, and David is is very religious. He was a lawyer for the Alliance Defending Freedom, and he's mm. filed lawsuits on behalf of religious freedom all over the country. He served in Iraq. Re- really good dude. But And David, on the one hand, will be like, yeah, I'll watch Game of Thrones, and I'll try and take a good message out of Game of Thrones. And then we obviously employ Matt Walsh here, and Matt Walsh says that we should all burn our television sets. So where, where do you come down? <laughs> where do you come down on, on sort of what do you think it's appropriate for religious people to watch, or how do you think religious people should should engage with entertainment? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, obviously, you're not going to open up the Bible and, and it's going to tell you what shows you should and shouldn't watch. So I think I think that there's principles. Um, so I'm I'm always looking at, as as. I want to have integrity, and I think integrity means who I am in public is going to is the same as who I am in private. Uh, that that I'm not a, I'm not I don't have dual personalities. And uh, you know, when I when I'm watching television or I'm listening to music, I want to be the same person that I'm going to be even when I'm in front of my kids, because I think like I want my whole life to honor God, the whole the whole thing. I want it all all to be there. So uh, so for us, actually, the television is just rarely on in our house. So. Uh, for us, we're, we're watching uh, The Voice or a basketball game or a football game, uh, and we're watching, you know, Chopped because we like to cook. And, and but but that's th- those are sort of the staples in our house. Not so much the sitcoms or or uh, or, or the one-hour dramas or Lord of the Rings. We've probably seen all of those and you know a million times over. So, g- given your sort of entertainment taste, what what do you guys do in in your off hours? I mean. See, it's funny. I rarely see movies. Like, I, I don't even really like to go see movies. I'll go see a movie with my friends in it or it's, or it's something that's important. I'll, I'll, I'll go see it. But in our off hours, um, it's really kind of boring. We, just, we like being home. We just like being with each other. I travel quite a bit. And so when I'm home, like this month has just been awesome. I've been home for a whole month. And so I'm putting up Christmas lights. I'm weeding in the garden. I'm like scoring so many husband points by cooking for my wife. And she's an amazing cook. But I'm just like, honey, just let me go in the kitchen for a month. <laughs> and I'm just making fantastic things. This Bobby Flay burger that I came, that I came across is awesome. You got to make it for your wife. She'll love it. Okay, well, when, first of all, I could definitely use to score some of those points so yeah. that's, that sounds perfect. I'll, I'll definitely hit you up for that recipe. Okay, I'll, I'll, give, you the, I'll give you the cooking, <laughs> the, 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 the app that I use. It's, so, it's great. Yeah, so you've been watching sort of the era of Me Too, and one of the things that's been interesting to watch has been how Hollywood has dealt with Me Too, because obviously Me Too started in Hollywood, and then Hollywood has immediately decided that it's Hollywood's place to lecture the rest of America on Me Too, which has been quite amusing. The same people who held up Harvey Weinstein as a moral hero for, for decades have now decided that they get to 
at the Oscars explain to the rest of America exactly how terrible it is to mistreat women, which some of us already actually knew. Mm. You've, had, you've had this rule for, for quite a while that you won't kiss any woman who is not your wife uh. on screen or off. So how, when, did, when did you decide to implement that rule, given the fact you're an actor? Yeah. <clears throat> I think it was when I got married. I, I think it was just husband 101. For me, it was pretty, pretty simple. I, I made a promise to my wife at the altar. And I figure, like, you know, other than being an actor, uh, guys don't have this understanding with their wives that they get to go to work and kiss other women that they're not married to. <laughs> but sort of like everybody gets a free pass in my business. And I was like, no, my wife's not into that. And like, that's not, that's not a good idea. Uh, I, want, I, want a, I want a great marriage. And so, Has that uh, ever come up? Have you ever been reading a script and, and all of a sudden there was something where you had to kiss yeah. and you're like, oh, yeah. guess not. Yeah, and so not, not often, but, but if, if it has, and yeah, there's been other times I'm like, I'm like, you can get so many more people to go do this scene. I mean, and it's usually not just kissing, right? It's like you're in bed with somebody, right? I mean, it, uh, and so, but you know, it's something that's paid great dividends in my marriage, you know? <laughs> and, and believe me, I, I'm, I'm so thankful to have a, a wife who still loves me after 29 years. I wanna do everything that I can to honor her. And you know, I, th I, think, I think everybody would like to have the confidence and the trust in their spouse that even when they're not around, they're, uh, that, that, they're, that they are who they think they are, you know? And that's, and that's really what I'm striving to be. So I wanna ask you about this amazing new pro-life movie that you're coming out with. You are telling me a little bit about it before the show, and it sounds incredible. But if you wanna hear about it, you have to go over to dailywire.com slash subscribe, give us your money, and you can hear the end of our conversation over there. Kirk, thank you so much for coming by. I really appreciate it, Thank dude. you, great to talk with you. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Andrew Clavin Show, The Michael Moles Show, and The Matt Walsh Show. Thanks for listening. The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special is directed by Mathis Glover and produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Associate producer, Colton Haas. Our guests are booked by Caitlin Maynard. Post-production is supervised by Alex Zingaro. Editing by Donovan Fowler. Audio is mixed by Mike Caromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. Title graphics by Cynthia Angulo. The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. We'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values, and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.